Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 49. How do you read the law? And the following episode is a sermon that I preached on July 14th of this year on the passage in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. You probably know it best as Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. And the reason I'm choosing to insert it here, I'm actually really excited about this and would just like to share with you the fact that while I am the creator and the thinker behind the Unbinding the Bible podcast, this podcast in no way reflects the fact that there are simply things I know that I feel I need to share with you, but that every single week as I work through this podcast myself in order to prepare what I want to share with you, I am constantly learning new things. And it really excites me, and I want to share it with you as a friend, as a co-learner, because what Jesus taught me when I was studying for this particular sermon was something that is very much in line with the idea of the Unbinding the Bible podcast, but is in fact something that I have never seen before. And this has radically reshaped again and continued to change the way that I look at the Bible now with a whole new set of lenses. And I'll even reference that in the sermon itself as something that I have never seen prior to um, looking at, at that passage on that particular week. And so I want to offer this sermon to you as an encouragement. Number one, that we are always learning and that that is never a sign that we are hard-hearted or closed off or blind but it, it, it is an indicator that, that growth never stops. And so we need to hold on to what we understand, um, recognizing that there is more to come and we may need clarification in the future and we may need things to be refined. But I've decided to insert it here in the podcast because we're really getting ready to start looking at some passages in Revelation, particularly as we try to define and try to understand the apocalyptic imagery that John uses throughout the book. And the topic that I will address in this sermon is how do you read the law and recognizing that the very fact remains that who we are as people and what we think we expect to see in the Bible when we read it drastically shapes the way we actually think the Bible is speaking to certain issues or not speaking to certain issues. And so the fact remains I will make interpretive decisions as do you as we work our way through any passage of the Bible. But in Revelation, those decisions seem to become much more um, stark and in contrast with one another. Case in point, you've heard me reference now in past few episodes about the fact that trumpet sounds were calling troops to battle. Well, we're going to have a very interesting way of defining just what God's troops, quote-unquote, look like and what that actually means, not to mention the fact that when we see a sword proceeding out of the mouth of the Son of Man, how we read that and what we expect to see when we read that will very much dictate what we believe that sword coming out of his mouth means. And so I do feel like this sermon will be helpful for you. I think it will be an encouragement to you, and I would encourage you to just follow along in your Bible, if you have the chance to do that, or else just sit back and listen. But this is the sermon, How Do You Read the Law?
The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, I am not entirely sure that a parable like this really needs that much of an introduction. Jesus brings to our attention one of the most central issues of the Christian faith. What does it really mean to love? And who are the people Jesus really expects us to love? So if you have a Bible with you, there are some at the... Under the chairs at the end of your row, grab your phone, grab your own Bible. Please open it to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Our narrative begins with a lawyer asking Jesus what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, answers the man's question with questions of his own. What is written in the law... How do you read it? Now, as you and I are walking through this parable, we don't want to just blow right past Jesus' questions, okay? These questions aren't random. And contrary to the way I have always read this parable prior to this past Friday, these questions aren't redundant. This is not Jesus asking the same question twice. These are two different questions. These questions are not redundant. They're actually brilliant. They're brilliant because Jesus knows something that we often miss. And that is that someone's understanding of the law is not always the same as what is written in the law. Just because the law says something does not mean that the one reading that law will automatically know what it means or see just how it applies. Sometimes a person's lack of self-awareness 
or prejudices or impure motives can cloud the way he or she reads the law. And we don't have to look far in our narrative to find out that this is precisely what is going on with the lawyer. I mean, I did this about a month ago. Jessica sent me to the grocery store for what the list said were shelled pistachios. I read the list that said shelled pistachios. I walked over to the section of pistachios, looked at the shelled ones, looked at the unshelled ones, and I looked at the list and saw the word shelled pistachios and picked up the pistachios with the shells on the outsides of them, <laughs> fully convinced that I was getting exactly what my wife wanted, only to come home and find out the way I was reading the list produced the exact opposite effect. So I know that that tendency is at least in me, if it's not in anybody else, but as you and I listen to Jesus' parable, we need to ask whether or not something similar is ever going on with us when we read the law. So the lawyer rightly answers that the law says to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus informs him that he is correct, and then he exhorts him to live accordingly. Right here, then, is the lawyer's answer to Jesus' first question. What is written in the law? Of course, if simply knowing what was written in the law was all that mankind needed in order to obey God's law, there'd be nothing more for Jesus to say. But there is more for Jesus to say. Because the law itself has never made anyone righteous. Trying to get to the root of that problem, though, is going to require us to look at Jesus' second question. How do you read it? Now, you might be tempted to think that the lawyer already answered that question. After all, he was the one who just told Jesus what the law said. Doesn't that mean he, that that was the way he read it? Well, not exactly. And the reason for my hesitation is because of what Luke tells us about the lawyer immediately after. An insight, by the way, that sets up the entire reason for Jesus telling his parable. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? To justify himself to be right in his own eyes, to be in the right before God, before others, and before himself. This is what the lawyer wants. It's what's driving his question. He wants to read the law and feel justified regarding all of the ways he is already doing what the law tells him to do. In other words, he reads the law as someone who is hoping it doesn't require anything more of him than he is already giving. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? In other words, who are the people you are asking me to love? Who am I obligated to love? His focus is outside of himself. It's on just who exactly it is out there who should be the recipients of his love. Now, it's important for us to realize that this desire for self-justification, 
to be seen as in the right is stubbornly present within all human beings all the time. And it's equally important for us to realize that there are an infinite number of subtle ways that we can convince ourselves that this tendency towards self-justification isn't working in us. As a side note, I want to make sure we don't think that people justified by faith in Jesus will no longer look for righteousness within themselves. There's nothing in us that can put us in the right. And you might be tempted to think that this should go without saying, but the temptation towards self-justification is so strong that it manages to find its way even into the lives of those who claim both to love God and to be following Him. That was the case with the lawyer, and there's a lot we can learn from the parable that Jesus tells him. The parable is meant to redirect this lawyer's focus. The issue is not, who do I need to love, but rather, am I a loving person? And the way Jesus tells this story strips away the self-justification that has embedded itself so deeply in this lawyer's heart. For at the heart of the question, who do I need to love, is the idea that there are some people out there who, by virtue of their actions, or religion, or nationality, or skin color, or value, or way of life, or moral state, render them undeserving of my love. Hence the fact that I believe myself justified, or in the right, when I withhold my love from them. Now the moment you believe this, you also affirm the belief that there is something in you by virtue of your actions or religion or nationality or skin color or value or way of life or moral state that renders you deserving of the kind of love you are currently withholding. And Jesus knows that this way of looking at the world is the cause of all racism, all bigotry, every conceivable bias, every injustice, hatred, envy, jealousy, and murder. And Jesus knows how deeply this goes. And so in speaking to this lawyer, he uses the one person who, to a Jew, was considered the most despised person in the world. One whose actions and religion and nationality and skin color and value and way of life and moral state most assuredly, in the minds of the Jews at least, rendered him entirely undeserving of their love. For Jesus to set this person up, this Samaritan, as the example to follow... He both shatters the lawyer's self-justification and forces him to come face to face with the truth of a heart that is unwilling to love. The example that Jesus places before this lawyer is of a Samaritan, a hated group of people to the Jews. The Samaritans were a mixed breed of the poorest of the poor Jews who were left in the land when the Assyrian Empire came in and wiped out the northern kingdom Israel and sacked their capital city, Samaria. 
The Assyrian invaders then intermarried with these poverty-laden Jews and created a mixed breed of sorts. They mixed their religions, adopting some of the gods and idols of the Assyrians as well as some of the Assyrian practices. But they also retained their belief in the Lord and as good Jews longed for the day when their Messiah would come to their rescue. Just for a helpful comparison, this is why the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that Jesus has a conversation with happens to know so much about the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. Because historically, she's connected to the Jewish people. So the dynamic at work here is that the Jews who had not intermarried with the Assyrian invaders viewed themselves as morally superior to those who did. They believed that the Samaritans by virtue of their mixed descent and mixed religion, had rendered themselves too impure to any longer be the recipients of God's love, mercy, or care. The Jews were the real people of God, the ones who had kept themselves separate and distinct from the pagan nations around them, and because of this, were the only ones who could expect God to come to them in salvation. The Jews were experts, at least in their own eyes, at loving other Jews. Those whom they were convinced were also loved by God. But the Samaritans, those traitors, those mixed breed of idolaters, those impure Jews, God must certainly despise those sorts of people. And so many of these same Jews concluded that since God hated the Samaritans, they were simply expressing their love to God by hating the Samaritans too. They were fine with the command to love your neighbor as yourself as long as one's neighbor was anyone but a Samaritan. And that's precisely why Jesus chose a Samaritan. He did it because he knows that our tendency to see differences among people can really be used as nothing more than a cover for the fact that deep within our hearts we don't want to love people like that. We prefer to love people who are like us. Those we find it natural to love. But of course we can't actually admit that. And so we don't. Instead, we choose to read the law in a way that doesn't require us to love those types of people and not have to experience any guilt associated with that decision because, after all, we're not breaking the law. People do this all the time. It's sad and it's scary because while they believe they are rightly reading the law, they are wrongly reading themselves. They may not see the motives at work in their hearts. Or they may not want to admit the motives they know are there. Following Jesus, though, invites us to admit everything, motives and all, and to invite him to search deep inside our hearts and to discover whatever is there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Jesus, we're free to do this. He's come to shine the light of his truth into the dark places of our world. 
and the self-justifying reasons people come up with to withhold love from another person or group of people are some of the darkest places that exist. Jesus knows there is only one way to deal with this. Flip the bias on its head. You see, the real shock of this parable isn't merely that Jesus calls his followers to love those they feel are unworthy of love. The real shock is that of all the people Jesus exhorts his followers to be like, he chooses their most despised group, the Samaritans. And he does it to get a necessary point across. You want to know who it is you must love to be obeying my commandment. I want to know whether or not you are a loving person. Notice that the parable begins with the lawyer asking a question. And who is my neighbor? In other words, who out there am I obligated to love? But the parable ends with Jesus asking the lawyer a question. Who proved to be a neighbor? In other words, who in there are you? In the parable, the priest and the Levite ask, what will happen to me if I stop and help? And in the nature of this parable, it's pretty easy to realize that if a man is lying in the ditch after having been beaten up by robbers, then there are decent chances that said robbers may still be lurking in the shadows and that you would be at risk if you stopped to help. And it seems by the repeated phrase passed by on the other side that there was an agenda going here that did not necessarily involve stopping to help. And so I think it's fair to conclude that that question is centered on what will happen to me if I help. Jesus tells his parable to redirect our question to, I'm sorry, to saying what will happen to him if you don't. To consider persons and events and situations only in the light of their effect upon myself is to live on the doorstep of hell. Selfishness is doomed to frustration centered as it is upon a lie. To live exclusively for myself, I must make all things bend themselves to my will as if I were a god. So says Thomas Merton in No Man is an Island. But the fact is, we are not gods. We are human beings made in the image of God. Okay, sure. But you might genuinely be walking into danger if you stop and help this man. Who in their right mind would do this kind of thing? Who would willingly enter a dangerous situation and put themselves at risk in order to care for and heal someone who sees him as their enemy. Let me ask my question again. Who would willingly enter a dangerous situation and put themselves at risk in order to care for and heal someone who sees him as their enemy? Who indeed? Let's not forget who is telling this parable. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, 
much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, we were the enemies. We were those who were not in the right. We were not deserving of love. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So here it is. Despite our sinful state, despite being enemies of God, despite having nothing in us that makes us in the right, Jesus, the righteous one, the one in the right, justified us by his blood. Jesus' shed blood is what makes us in the right. It's what justifies us, not self-justification. And why is Paul bothering to tell us this? Because he's confident that the justification that comes from Jesus' shed blood will save us from the wrath of God. Wrath, by the way, that is directed toward all the things that are produced when people in this world seek self-justification. All racism, all bigotry, every conceivable bias, every injustice, hatred, envy, jealousy, and murder. The wrath of God is directed toward everything in this world that is not rooted in love. The lawyer was initially asking Jesus about inheriting eternal life, remember? Right. And Jesus knows that in order for real life to be experienced, every self-justifying tendency in the human heart needs to be named, identified, owned, repented of, forgiven, cleansed, and made new. This is what Jesus is attempting to do with this lawyer by telling him this parable. He wants him to see inside his own heart and to recognize that the real problems in this world are not the people we've identified as undeserving of love. The real problem is the heart that sees itself as justified in its refusal to love. Jesus is addressing what real love looks like. And in order to drive his point home, he elevates the actions of an individual that all Jews were convinced God hated and then tells that lawyer to imitate him. It's a brilliant strategy. Because it strips us all of the idea that our ability to love well is tied at all to the kinds of things we think make us better than other people. In the gospel, we lose all of this because we know there is nothing in us that made us worthy of love. And so to embrace Jesus' love for ourselves and then fail to extend that same kind of love toward our enemies is to misunderstand the very nature of the gospel. By being cornered into acknowledging that the Samaritan was the one who acted like a neighbor, the lawyer is forced to address his elitist views in the world. 
which is the one thing that needs to be destroyed for his self-justifications to stop. We are not above other people. We are not more deserving of love than someone else. But there are many people today who read the law with an elitist lens and who remain both unchanged and unwilling to see just how deeply God desires us to be transformed. So what does this mean for us? Well, I have a few thoughts about that. Can I be part of a system that excludes the other? Can I be part of a system that is driven by the belief that my safety is primary and that others' needs are secondary? Remember, the Samaritan is being contrasted with the priest and a Levite who were stuck in a system that justified them in walking past someone in need because he wasn't their neighbor. He wasn't like them. And we are surrounded today by a culture that reinforces separations between those whose actions or religion or nationality or skin color or value or way of life or moral state are different from yours. Jesus is telling us to reject that system. And he's cautioning us against the kind of spirit that chooses not to see or not to help because to do so might jeopardize our safety. It's much more natural, I know, to concern ourselves with our own needs before those of someone else. But instead of feeling justified in acting out those natural beliefs, maybe we should allow Jesus to help us deal with the presence of fear that is hiding in the dark places of our souls. Fear for one's own safety and of one's own needs not being met is what drives people to justify looking after their own needs before those of someone else. And I feel like today that there is a tendency towards self-protection among Americans, maybe more now than ever. And it seems that many Christians are being pulled toward that. But 1 John chapter 4 reminds us that perfect love casts out fear. So fear is real, but so is love. And love is the only motivator worthy of a follower of Jesus because love was his only motivation in coming to rescue us. And so Jesus poses the questions, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I think based on the way that those questions are stated, we could also ask, what is written in our hearts? And how do you read it? The issue that Jesus is addressing, I think, is one of, of, of a posture. What is our posture? What is our stance toward those around us? Let's take a super simple example. When I am in an argument with my spouse, or I'm trying to break up an argument with my kids, what is my posture? What is my stance? If I, I, and if you're like me, you know, if you have a, of a really um, quick-witted spouse who will win the argument because she's just better at that kind of thing than me, you, you can take, it can take years of your life 
to never really understand what an argument actually is because I'm not listening to what she's saying. I'm entering the argument wanting to be right. And so you know what happens when you want to be right? You shut your, you shut your mind up. You don't listen to people. This is why James tells us, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Do you know why James says that? Actually, you know why we're given um, two ears and only one mouth? Because we're supposed to listen twice as much as we speak. That would be learning to read yourself well to know the reason I'm getting so agitated right now is because under the surface, I want to be justified. I want my perspective to be right. You know what? We might be right. So it certainly doesn't work. It doesn't um, harm anyone then to just say, okay, fine, let me listen to what you're saying because maybe you're actually shedding some light into an area that I need some help in. This applies to relationships with, between um, kids in the home. I want my perspective. I need you to listen to me. I am afraid right now in our society as a whole, there is so much noise and so much no one listening to any other person's perspective because we feel that if a legitimate point is made that we have to concede the whole thing. No, we don't. But we need to both read ourselves and read the law because when the two come together, it's beautiful. I've read this parable for years. I never saw that distinction, which tells me I've got a ton more to learn myself. But our willingness, our posture, our stance toward others says a lot about ourselves just as much as we want it to say about that stubborn person that we just can't get along with. This hits us right where we live. But thank God, in Jesus, we're free to admit I'm a stubborn person. Would you help me deal with that? And guess what? When you open up that little part of your soul to the healing presence of Jesus, He will give you patience and kindness and love and grace to speak with another stubborn person. And you'll find some amazing things taking place in conversations between your spouse, between your kids, at your workplace, in your community, whatever. That's what He wants. He wants us to flip it Start with us, see what's here, and then approach his truth with that lens. If we do that, I think we'll be amazed at the real life that he wants to grant us. It's a life that never ends. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to heal us. We need you to heal us and bandage up our own wounds, and then we need you to set us on our feet so that we can heal other people. And so we declare our love for you this morning and invite you in to our own hearts, to the darkness that resides there and the self-justifications that we may even be blind to. I know that I have been blind and probably still am to many self-justifications. I ask you to forgive me and to forgive us for the ways that we have used things in our own hearts to prevent us or used as an excuse to not love others the way we should. For we know that you have come to rid the world of darkness and you've come to bring justice and restore peace and order. And we are inviting you to begin that work in our own hearts. We need you as our savior. We need you as our redeemer. We ask you to be just that for us and in us and through us. And then use us as we go to be agents of healing 
and bearers of light into a world that can only hear the truth we want to speak if we are able to say it in a way that is loving. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.